The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you from Proverbs 30, verses 3 and 4. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put his trust in him. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord, our great and glorious God. We humbly reply to these, answers, these questions. No one, no one, but you alone. Only you have the right to ascend and descend from heaven. Only you are so infinite that you are able to grab the wind. Only you are able to bundle up the oceans. Only you are so creative to trace out the ends of the earth. What is your name and what is your son's name? Your name is the Lord, Yahweh, the Most High God, our Father, and your son's name is Jesus, and it is in his name that we put our trust and that we come to worship you now, and amen. amen. As we work through the fruit of the Spirit, we come to the little virtue that can accomplish great things. I'm talking about kindness. Kindness can change lives and convert souls. This was part of the story for Rosalia Butterfield that she told in her memoir, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. What led this woman, who was a committed lesbian, to become a committed Christian? Kindness. She tells the story about how after she wrote a sharp criticism of a local Christian group in the paper, she received a large stack of mail, and either it was fan mail or it was hate mail. Then she received a two-page response from a local pastor. It was a kind and inquiring letter, she said. It had a warmth and a civility to it, in addition to its probing questions. It was the kindest letter of opposition that I had ever received, she said. And eventually, she contacted the pastor and became friends with him and his wife through many meals and conversations and questions. Rosaria reflected that they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. It was the kindness of this husband and wife that helped lead her on the way to her repentance. Rosaria's story and millions others like her testifies to the truth that kindness is powerful. Kind, and this is true because kindness is spirit produced. Kindness grows in the lives of people who have been grafted by the Holy Spirit into Jesus Christ. Jesus is kind. Jesus is kind to the marginalized. Jesus is kind to the kids to the pompous Pharisees, to the uncool, 
to those bleeding, oozing, stinking. Jesus is kind to the adulterers. Jesus is kind to the lesbians. It was the kindness of God that placed Jesus on the cross in order to forgive sinners. Jesus is kind to sinners. Has not Jesus been kind to you? And so Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind. <laughs> the same command that you give to your three-year-old constantly, God gives to you. In the way that you speak to your spouse, be kind. In the way that you talk about that girl in your class or those other girls, be kind. In the way that you play with toys, be kind. In your small talk with the Winko teller, be kind. In your interaction with a local lesbian, be kind. Because who knows, by the kindness of God, this lesbian might become your sister in Christ. Paul says that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. God has been very, very kind to us. And so, this reminds us of our need to repent. Proverbs 16, 6. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Father, you are most kind and tender-hearted to us. And yet we confess that far too often we have been hard-hearted and mean to others. You have been kind in the details of our lives and in our grand need of salvation and forgiveness. And yet we belittle others, are callous to their needs, and refuse to forgive. This is not kindness. Or we turn kindness into a cheap imitation of niceties, which smile and make friendly motions, but remain silent and passive with sin, and does not lead to you. This is not kindness. Father, we ask that even now you would overwhelm us with your own kindness, so that way we may truly repent. And we confess our own individual sins to you and Selah. We ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And amen. Please rise for the assurance of God's pardon. Again from Ephesians 4.32. God has been kind to you. He has been tender-hearted to you. We've seen that in the way that he has forgiven you in Christ. So the good news of the gospel is that if you come here fully repenting of your sin and confessing it, then your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. Amen.
The sermon text this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 28, the whole chapter, that's 68 verses, but I will only read a sample of them. These are the words of God. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. And cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are a generation that despises authority. And in doing so, we have despised you. Forgive our recalcitrant hearts and make us submissive to you now. We ask for your spirit in Jesus' name, and amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a joy to finally be back here with you. Um, If you're wondering where I've been, I've been on the road for the last uh, five weekends preaching at other uh, CREC churches. I was in uh, Portland, I was in Coeur d'Alene, I was in Montana, and I bring greetings to you from all those churches. One of the fun things is I'm learning new liturgies every time I, I go to these churches, and uh, last week in Portland, they have this tradition where uh, the pastor, uh, when they, the elders process after the service, there's one aisle down the middle, and the preacher runs down, all the kids are like hanging in the aisle, and you high-five all the kids. <laughs> The other thing is, they give an entire goblet of wine to each household for communion. And, you know, it's just me there, so <laughs> I drank this whole glass of wine, and I was feeling good by the end of that service. So, just suggestions for the leadership of this church. <laughs> so, uh, it, it's really good to see most of your faces again. I'm, I'm really pleased to be, to be back here. Uh, Well, right now, uh, serious guys, Uh, right now we're in the middle of a sermon series through the book of Deuteronomy, and um, I have been assigned Deuteronomy 28. And since today is also Reformation Sunday, we sang those Reformation songs, um, I thought I would weave together a kind of Reformation-y sermon from Deuteronomy. And so my sermon title, you'll see, is 501 Years of Sola Scriptura, 501 Years of Sola Scriptura. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, 501 years ago, on October 31st, uh, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses, or grievances, uh, to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And from that time, we have marked that off as the beginning of what has become known as the Protestant Reformation. And today is the day we kind of celebrate uh, that event. 
And if you've ever wondered about the differences between Roman Catholic Christians and Protestant Christians, I'm going to explain to you some of what that disagreement is today. So I know this is old news for some of you, but it's good for us to review these things. So I want to begin with a quote, and it is a question with an answer. So listen to this question closely. From what source does the divine authority of the scriptures become known to us? Let me say that again. From what source does the divine authority of the scriptures become known to us? Does it depend upon the testimony of the church, either as to itself or as to us? We deny against the papists. Those are the words of Francis Turretin, writing 160 years after Martin Luther. And I read you that quote because it asks the question that really gets to the heart of our past and present disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church. And that question is a question of authority. Who gets to say with infallible divine authority what is true and what is false? Does the church and its pope have that authority? Or is it the scriptures themselves? Asked another way, are the scriptures divine because the church tells you so? Or are they divine because the scriptures tell you so? How you answer that question will affect every other doctrine down the line. And there can only be one final court of appeal. So which is it? This is the battleground and a major bone of contention between the Protestants and the Papists. And so what I want to do this morning is set before you the doctrine known as sola scriptura. And I want to explain to you what that doctrine is and what it is not. And then I want to ask you three questions that arise from this text in Deuteronomy 28. And those things will all hopefully weave together. So first, defining sola scriptura. The doctrine of sola scriptura is that scripture alone is our only infallible authority and rule of faith and practice. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Now, some people think sola scriptura means essentially it's just me and my Bible. Just, you know, find a cabin, I can study God's word, and I will arrive at perfect truth. Because I don't want systems, don't give me theology books, I just need my Bible. And some people have this misunderstanding of sola scriptura. And we tend to call this misunderstanding solo scriptura, meaning scripture is my only authority, period. And no one else can tell me what to do. No pastor, no church, and definitely no a creed, confession, or council. So, so that's not the reformed doctrine of sola scriptura. That's an aberration of it, and we pejoratively call it solo scriptura. Uh, but notice, I did not say that scripture is our only authority. Sola scriptura teaches that scripture is our only infallible Authority. That's the big difference. It is an infallible authority, which means there are other valid authorities and rules to live by. But scripture is the only one that is perfect, inerrant, infallible, and supreme. 
So let me give you a few examples of other legit authorities. So children, your parents are sinners. They make mistakes from time to time. They sin. And yet God has commanded you to obey them, to honor them, to respect them as an authority above you. The same goes for husbands and wives. Husbands are the head and have authority over the wife. Wives are commanded by God to submit to this authority. Uh, And there's also a place where there is equality of authority in marriage, and that is in the bedroom. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, and 5, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. So, you know, the feminists want to screech about patriarchy. But here we have God, God is giving a quality of authority in marriage, in sex between a husband and a wife. And that's real authority that God has ordained for your good, for the good of your marriage. Other examples of legitimate authorities would include your boss, the government, the elders of the church, confessions, creeds, our church constitution, and so on. These are all valid authorities under God, and if we are bound to them, we are to submit to them. Now, all of those authorities I just listed are fallible. They're fallible. They are sinful in some way. And it is on the basis of God's word that we can know when to submit or when not to submit to one of these lesser authorities. So wives, if your husband commands you to bear false witness, to lie, to cover something up, you must not submit. And you must not submit because there is a higher authority which protects you. So the scripture says God will always provide a way of escape. There's always a way for you to not sin. And when scripture is our highest authority, we are protected from these lesser authorities when they become tyrannical. So with with sola scriptura, we can live before God without sin. And what was happening in Martin Luther's day, 501 years ago, was the church had made itself the de facto supreme authority. They had usurped scripture's place and asserted for themselves papal infallibility. Going back to Turretin's question, the papists had made the church the source of divine authority. They set themselves up higher than God's own word. If you were to ask a Roman Catholic, a papist, how do you know the scriptures are divine? They would say, well, it's not because the scriptures say so, but because we say so. And if the church is the highest authority, then you well must listen to and obey the church over anything that you read in your Bible. You see how that might not go well. You think how corruption might creep into the church. And that's exactly what happened. There was a reason they killed people who owned Bibles. Over the summer, I got to go to Geneva, Switzerland. It's like the most magical place ever. And I went to the Reformation Museum there. And they have this exhibit of tiny little Bibles and the tiniest little Psalters that you would need like a magnifying glass to read. And there was an exhibit of like hiding places for Bibles. (laughs) Here's all the places that you would hide this tiny little Bible. And this is because owning a Bible was illegal. You know, what all of us have on our phone, if you're really godly and have a Bible on your phone, that was illegal to own. 
There was a reason they killed William Tyndale for translating the Bible into English. Because when this word gets unleashed, all the power structure that was there is going to be threatened. And with this corrupt authority that the church was holding on to, they started getting rich off of selling these things called indulgences. Now, do you know what an indulgence is? Well, it's kind of like, um, I was trying to think of how to explain it. It's kind of like a discount card or like points on a credit card uh, that gets you reduced punishment for sin and usually time off in purgatory, which means they were essentially peddling salvation. They had monetized the gospel and were selling the forgiveness of sins as if God could be bought off by good works or money or time spent in purgatory. Number 66 of Luther's 95 Theses says, The treasures of indulgences are nets with which one now fishes for the wealth of men. So Jesus said, you know, go be fishers of men, but these papists have now been just fishing for people's wallets instead. And it was against these corruptions in the church that the Protestant reformers fought. And sola scriptura was the foundation beneath every other argument against the Romish church. So something we hold dear as Protestants, justification by faith, well, that's only true if scripture teaches it. And it does. The doctrine of by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, these things are only true insofar as they are founded on scripture alone. They're not merely true because pastor says so, the pope says so, or the church says so, but ultimately because God says so. And so let God be true and every man a liar. The pope of Rome is a liar. What the Roman Catholic Church teaches today is lies. So the doctrine of sola scriptura says that scripture alone is our only infallible authority and rule of faith and practice. And this is the standard by which we judge everything else. Okay, that's sola scriptura. What does that have to do with Deuteronomy? Well, in this chapter, God commands his people to hearken, to listen, to diligently obey his voice. To listen to him and obey him. And whether we will obey or not comes down to this same question of authority. Well, who says? Why should I listen? And this brings us to my first question from Deuteronomy 28, and that is, why don't we diligently obey the voice of the Lord? Why don't we obey God when he lays things out real clear for us? And the answer is not complicated. You know this. The answer is sin, right? We don't like anyone telling us what to do. Never, right? From the time you were young, you didn't like anyone telling you, you know, when to eat, when to get up, when to take a nap. And you still don't like people telling you what to do. And you think back to Genesis 3, when the serpent tempted Eve, he pressed upon this same question of authority. Did God really say? And then he holds out for her the opportunity to become her own authority. He says to her, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, Eve, by grasping for the fruit, could become the arbiter of her own destiny. She could decide what's good and what's evil. She could become her supreme authority. 
You know, why should God be the one to tell you what to do anyways? Does he really know what's best for you after all? And 6,000 years later, you and I, we got the same problem. We always think we know best. We don't listen to God because we think we know better than him what will make us happy, what will grant us human flourishing, what will give us life. And so we do what we want. Uh, Earlier this week, uh, uh, the Babylon Bee, I have to say, steals my thunder from time to time, and this is one of them. Uh, I read this headline that says, Progressive Evangelical Leaders Meet to Affirm Doctrine of Sola Feels. The new doctrine, translated by feels alone, formally outlines one of the essentials of modern-day progressive evangelicalism, that one's feelings are the supreme authority in all matters of theology and practice. So that's Babylon B. I was going to hit you with that anyways, but, but, they, but they stole my thunder. But, but that'll preach, right? Sola feels, you know. And my only beef with this article is that it said progressive evangelicals. Because from where I'm standing, this is endemic in evangelicalism across the board. As funny as this is, I see this doctrine of by feels alone in my own heart all the time, and I see it in yours too. I would surmise that every sin we committed this last week was a result of us following our feelings instead of following Jesus. In biblical terms, we call this living according to the passions of the flesh. We choose laziness over obedience, fleeting pleasures over eternal treasures. We choose the broad and easy path instead of the straight and narrow. We love to live by our feelings instead of faith. We affirm sola scriptura. We know the Latin, look at us go. But we live like sola feelers. We live like the snowflakes we make fun of on the left. We wait until we're in the mood to obey God's commands. And in reality, when are you ever really in the mood to obey God, to discipline your children, to take responsibility? If you wait till your feelings catch up and you have that moment of godly piety, man, you're going to be waiting a long time and your life's going to be a wreck. And that's what we mean by living by sola feels. So why don't we obey? All kinds of reasons. Ultimately, because of sin. And so Deuteronomy 28 begins with this preamble. It says in verse 1, If if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commands which I command you today, then the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. So there is a promise held out for you here but only if you obey the voice of the Lord. Only if sola scriptura, God alone, is your infallible guide. Now my next question is then, well, what are these promises that God holds out for us if we obey? And the answer to this is blessings, the blessed life. And verses 3 through 13 describe the blessings for those who believe God and obey him. Listen to some of these. Blessed shall you be in the city... Blessed shall you be in the country. 
So whether you are in Boise or Potlatch, God's going to bless you wherever you go. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and blessed shall be your kneading bowl. So this is referring to your work, to your family. God will bless your business, your household, even the kitchen utensils are blessed. From the stove to the fridge, God will bless your pots, pans, and bowls. They will all be filled with nutritious, delicious, organic fruits and vegetables and meat too. Right? He really says, I'll bless your basket and your kneading bowl. I'm not making this stuff up. Verse 6, blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Everywhere you go. God will bless you if you will obey him. Verse 7, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. So when you start walking in favor, these haters are going to come, but God says, I'm going to destroy them before your face. They'll be sent away in every direction. The Lord will fight for you. And this passage continues on for another six verses detailing the blessings of keeping covenant with God. And if you were to read all of them, you'd think, that sounds really nice. The blessed life. Blessing everywhere I go, everywhere my foot treads. And specifically for Israel... It would be this fruitfulness and protection from enemies and prosperity in the land to which they were going to conquer. These are the positive blessings of obedience. So what about the other side? What if you do not obey the Lord? Something else is promised to you if you do not obey. This is my third question. What is that? What is promised if we do not obey? I considered reading to you all of Deuteronomy 28, and I I actually timed myself doing it. It was over 10 minutes long to read it out loud, so I thought you'd be standing for a long time, and by the time I had finished it, I was just exhausted. I was like, I don't don't even need to preach. I'll just read Deuteronomy 28, and um, I think it's super long for a reason. You think the blessing section is 10 verses. The section on curses is is 54 verses. And I'm not good at math, but that's like five times as many verses of curses than blessing. It's as if, you know, the proportions themselves are trying to teach us something. So God is really trying to drive a certain point home. So the answer to the question, what is promised if we disobey, becomes real explicit and very detailed. All of these curses... Calvin says of this section, this list of curses is longer than the previous one, which was proclaimed from Mount Sinai. This would have been back in Exodus. Undoubtedly, because the Spirit of God foresaw that the sluggishness of the people had need of sharper stimulants. All right, I like how he describes these curses as sharper stimulants. They, they need a swift kick in the pants. It's like a shepherd's rod or a master's whip meant to direct us away from sin and back to righteousness. The fact that we need this much text to tell us, to warn us about scripture, should reveal to us the illogical nature of sin. How insane you have to be to sin against God. There is this universal math that everyone knows. The wages of sin is death. Everyone dies. And you need to to explain that. 
Sin plus sin equals death every time. And so God, through Moses, gives his people ample explanation of what is going to happen if they disobey his commandments. This is a big warning sign on the covenant. This is kind of like, you know, a father, he says, you know, Johnny, you hit your sister again, and there's going to be five hard spankings for you. And God tells them, you know, Israel, if you disobey again, you're going to get wrecked. So God tells them ahead of time what the consequences of sin will be. Let me just read you, this is a brief sampling of these curses. 54 verses. Verse 15, It shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commands and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Here we go. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke, and all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. And that goes on for 33 verses later. It gets so bad, God says, I'm going to curse you with slavery. I'm going to curse you with warfare. I'm going to curse you with all kinds of diseases. I'll even curse you with cannibalism. Verse 53, this is perhaps the most uh, explicit, gross thing you see of these curses. It says, you shall eat the fruit of your own body. The flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you. In the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you, the tender and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to her son and her daughter, her placenta, which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, for she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates." This is God's judgment on sin. And it is severe. Pastor Ty talked about kindness meant to lead us to repentance. And Paul says, note the kindness of God, but note also his severity towards those who have fallen. And you see right here, God is very kind, but God is also very severe. All of this cursing is because God's people refuse to hearken to his voice. We choose other authorities besides the word of God. And in doing so, bring down curses upon our families, our churches, our nation, and our own head. If you wonder why cancer is a thing, why heart disease is the leading cause of death in America. That's apt, right? Heart disease. Why anxiety and depression are so common and everybody's hopped up on meds. Why we are in debt up to the trillions, slaughter babies by the millions. We call sodomy love and elect evil men to rule over us. It's because we are under the judgment of God. We have chosen other authorities besides Jesus Christ. 
And if he were to let us go, make no mistake, we would eat our own children. Did you know that sperm counts in men from America have dropped by more than 50% in less than 40 years? And researchers say that rate of decline is not slowing. A blessed life is a fruitful life, but God is giving us what we want. Barrenness. Softness. No virility. If you don't think God still judges nations according to his law, you are a fool. You are living like an atheist and God calls you a fool. And this is why we need sola Scriptura. This is why we needed the Protestant Reformation. What Israel did under Moses and what the Roman Catholic Church was doing 500 years ago is the same thing that we are doing today. Setting up other authorities as infallible and supreme instead of God's word. Even us Protestant evangelicals have our own versions of the Pope. We have all kinds of ways of usurping the authority that is rendered to God. We even retranslate our Bibles, right? Sola Scriptura, but we'll change it. We'll remove sins from them. We'll have gender-neutral pronouns. We are doling the edge of the sword so it won't offend anybody. Or you can get real sophisticated, heretically so. There's a man named Andy Stanley. He has one of the biggest churches in America right now. And he's going around these days saying, we don't believe because the Bible tells us so. We believe because of the resurrection of Jesus. And you think, I'm, I'm pro-resurrection of Jesus, but h- how did you know about the resurrection of Jesus? You see, claiming to be wise, Andy Stanley has become a fool. And he's publishing this stuff. And churches that I have friends in, family in, are being taught this nonsense right now. And so, yeah, we need to review Sola Scriptura. And we should not merely mock the papists. Because this is, this is us, guys. This is us. And you and I do this too. Reformed people do this too. Christ Church does this too. We play all kinds of games to get around submitting to God. We, we say, you know, only the parts I read are authoritative. Or only the New Testament. Or only the words of Jesus. You know, we're red-letter Christians. We love to use the name of Jesus to get around doing stuff that he commands us to do. This is how wicked our sinful hearts are. And if this is how you live, not wholly submitted to Jesus Christ, but keeping some authority for yourself, you can expect the discipline of judgment. If you're not a Christian, man, you can deserve nothing but wrath. If you are a Christian, you can deserve A lot of discipline from God. And so I want to conclude with this question. What is your ultimate authority right now? Really? Functionally? Who are you listening to and obeying in each part of your life? Who gets to dictate 
what you do with your body, with your mind, and your soul. You know, we have the, the motto here, all of Christ for all of life. But if we're honest, we say all of Christ for just some parts of our life. And I want to ask, where are you still reserving some authority for yourself? Where are you taking a little vacation from following Jesus in your walk with him? I mentioned earlier that sola scriptura is the foundation of every other doctrine. And if you are not a Christian, if you are a sinner, or if you are a Christian with remaining sin, we need right now the grace of God. That's what you need. You need to be forgiven. You need to be made righteous. You need to be justified by faith. And there is only one way this can happen, and that is through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And here's how this works. All those curses that I read in Deuteronomy and the ones I didn't read, God says those curses are for everyone who tries to use the law of God as a ladder to climb to heaven. He says in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under the curse. So I'd ask, are you relying on yourself? Are you trying to become a good enough person to be a Christian? If so, God says you are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, You know, there are two ways to heaven. You know this, right? You can either be perfect or find someone who is. God says, if you want to get to me by law keeping, if you want the blessings of the covenant by law keeping, go ahead. But if you break just one of the least of these commandments, you know, remember Ty talked about the Uh, The bird and uh, the eggs, right? You break the, the, the least commandment. God says you're guilty of the whole law because it's the same authority that you are rebelling against. And so if that's the way you want to save yourself, my friend, you're under a curse. Unless you're perfect. But there is another way that we can become righteous. And we call this justification. God says in verse 11 of Galatians 3, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, meaning you should know this. For it says, the just shall live by faith. The righteous are the people who trust not in themselves, but rely on God who live by faith. And this faith, by definition, looks outward. Faith is like an arm, an instrument that grasps on to Jesus Christ, the righteous redeemer and savior. Verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ hung on a tree. He took upon himself the curses we deserve to give us these blessings that we cannot earn. And I declare to you today that this Jesus is alive. This Jesus whom you crucified, whom your sins put on the cross. This Jesus has been risen from the dead. There's been a death, but there's been a resurrection. And because of that today, 
right now I can offer to you the forgiveness of sins, free of charge, no indulgences, no money, no papal nonsense. But it will cost you something. It will cost you everything. It will cost your whole life being crucified in Jesus Christ. If you come to Jesus, God demands of you that your body dies in Jesus Christ. And that means you are giving over to God all the authority that you're claiming right now for you. It's bringing yourself under God's word instead of standing as a judge over it. That is how you can have full assurance of salvation. This is Reformed Christianity. This is the Protestant religion. This is the outcome of 501 years of sola scriptura, God's grace to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard word. And I ask that you would send your spirit upon your people to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And I ask that you would spare your church. I ask that you would destroy false teachers in the land. That you would either bring them to repentance or cut them off from the land of the living. That they might no longer plunder your sheep. I ask that you would make Christ Church downtown a people that is submissive to your word. That has a heart that comes to it and says, whatever you say, I will do and I will learn to like it. I will learn to love it because it is your word. God, I ask that you would give us boldness. I ask that you would grant us to speak clearly to this culture the grace of forgiveness that is offered to all in Jesus Christ. Would you make that so of us today? In Jesus' name, amen. This week at uh, parish the parish discipleship groups, we were doing Psalm 3, where David is describing his flight from his son Absalom. Now David was in trouble, big trouble, and he knew it was a trouble of his own making. While Nathan told him that God had forgiven him of his sin regarding Bathsheba and Uriah, uh, he also told him there would be consequences, that a sword would never leave David's house. And in this case, it was Absalom's rebellion was the beginning of that, which anticipated the killing of his father David. So David could honestly confess in Psalm 3, Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say to me, There's no help for him in God. But we should note an important aspect of David, and that was... David's spiritual center. David's songs of worship record that whether in good times, in the face of attacks from enemies, or being confronted with his own sin, David consistently returns to his trusting relationship with God. And after this cry of trouble with Absalom at his heels, and knowing it was a result of his own sin, David still responds like this, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. And Selah. Now God gave this testimony concerning David. 
I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. Well, we have much to learn from David about fellowshipping with God. And if you go through David's Psalms and note all the ways that David sees God as his shield, his glory, his fortress, his, his stronghold, and many others, you will find more than 200 of these. And these 200 were more than just a list of metaphors. They were worship drawn from David's heart. They were drawn from his relationship with God. But what about us? Well, in 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship, into koinonia, with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So this fellowship's not just limited to David. It's our calling. It's all of our calling. And that fellowship, that koinonia, begins right here at this table. The sacrifice represented in the bread and the wine was the price paid to cleanse us of every sin, removing them as a barrier to our fellowship with God. We have been placed in Christ. As such, we now have perfect fellowship with God. That fellowship includes eating at this table, in his presence, eating with the church, his body, here on earth. Now, we understand fellowship with one another. That's something we might do at a PGG or with our families. We understand that kind of fellowship. Well, here God says that same fellowship exists with him in Jesus Christ our Lord. Know it. Taste it. Let it draw you into worship now with hearts made perfect in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for calling us into perfect fellowship with your Son by his death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you that you delight in us and call us to bring everything to you in worship, just like David, just like the Lord Jesus, because we pray in his name. Amen. The charge is this. Listen to Jesus, obey Jesus, and rejoice in Jesus. Receive now the benediction. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And all God's people said...